Hello and welcome. We're now at part four of a series looking at wisdom. My name's Mike and you're joining us at Watch It Baptist Church Online. I'm the pastor. We're looking at part three and in this part we're going to be looking uh, at some verses outside Proverbs for the first time so far in this sequence. There's quite a lot of reading the Bible that I want to do in this session so I, I pray that you'll bear with me as I do that. Um, we're going to dive in in a moment, but we're going to pray before we go any further. Lord God, give us the wisdom to understand wisdom. Give us your spirit. Open our minds and help us go where you're leading. Amen. In recent times, I've got lots more into podcasts, particularly when I'm driving. I love music, but there's something about having the chance to listen to someone talking and learning in the process that I find really invigorating. Love it. And recently I've been into a podcast called The Rest is History. It has its uh, upsides and downsides. I think its upside is it's very well informed. Its downside is it's hosted by two very middle class, well-educated public school boys. Um, and well, they're not boys anymore. They're now historians in their own right. So they are quite aware of the limits of their understanding. And that actually is sometimes very helpful. They bring a certain wisdom to how they present history. Sometimes they have guests and sometimes they just talk between themselves. Now, I listened to an episode recently about the famous speech from 1963 that Martin Luther King gave, the I Have a Dream speech. And among other things, I learned that the speech is famous for effectively its final three minutes, and it was about a 12-minute speech. There are a very relatively small number of words that are stuck in the sort of global consciousness about this speech, and it was made to a crowd of approximately a quarter of a million people at a time when that size of march, because there had been a march that arrived at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., uh, when marches like that weren't common. In fact, this was a bit of a first. And the people of Washington were terrified. Government employees would urge their families to be out of town on that day because they assumed, possibly because they were expecting a lot of black people to come, that it would turn difficult, probably violent. It never did. It's about not surprising, given that Martin Luther King, a civil rights activist, was also a pastor steeped in Bible knowledge, a third generation of Baptist pastors. He was fierce and determined. In that year, he gave 350 speeches over 365 days. And he talked about this dream that he had, a dream which for him was rooted actually importantly in his understanding of how the Bible tells us humanity is supposed to work. It was also rooted in an understanding of what the American sort of culture historically was aiming for. And he called on the constitutional statement that all men are created equal as a way of uh, demonstrating that this was a very biblical and a very American way to think. He was deeply rooted in that faith. And he brought its wisdom to 1950s and 60s United States. 
He did this biblically, despite the fact that the Bible has very little to say about racial segregation. And it has very little to say about mid-20th century circumstances. Martin Luther King was able to bring the wisdom of the truth of God, of the truth of the Bible, to a situation that the Bible doesn't explicitly know. And he does that through wisdom. What does the Bible have to say about the USA? I think probably nothing. Also, probably nothing to say about mobile phones. I suspect the Bible doesn't directly refer to cinema or artificial intelligence or fertility treatment or even democracy or even potatoes. There are lots of things the Bible doesn't speak directly about. And yet the principles, the truth of the Bible and of God's perspective can be brought to so many things. Maybe not potatoes, although chips are definitely superior to mashed potato. That is an inalienable truth. So there are lots of things the Bible doesn't talk directly about, but we are able to bring the wisdom of God from Scripture into circumstances that we actually face. So in important ways, the Bible has plenty to say about democracy or how you go about sharing the road with other car drivers or how you might correctly use your mobile phone. Part of the challenge that our society faces, our culture in the UK, but probably across the Western world, Europe and North America and Australia and so on, is that it's not very good at taking advice. I don't know about you, and it may be that you feel this is an unfair reflection on how you see the world. I think I I need to... I need to put my hand up and say, I think I'm sometimes caught in this position. John Steinbeck uh, puts it well. He says, no one wants advice, only corroboration. There's a risk that when we seek wisdom, what we might actually end up looking for is something that tells us what we already think. This, from my perspective, has long been a risk in Bible study groups. It's part of the reason why I think it's important that when we gather to look at the Bible, that we look to go beyond just saying, do we understand what it says? And we look at how we might take that forward, how we might be self-aware about what we need to challenge ourselves with, how we might need to be transformed is often how I talk about it. We need to be aware that there's going to be a temptation for us to say, how does the Bible reinforce my view? Because sometimes we need to be aware that the Bible isn't saying what we've always thought it said, which is we like. Sometimes it might be digging under the surface a little bit. And we need there to be room in our understanding. There needs to be enough wisdom in us to make space for that to happen. And this means that sometimes the way we read the Bible needs to be more to do with doing the right thing than it is about being moralistic. It's Isaac Asimov who said, never let your morals get in the way of you doing the right thing. Now, there's a good chance that a few of you are going, what on earth are you on about? And are you really actually downplaying the significance of the Bible? And I will jump straight in and go, no, absolutely not. Actually, what I think I'm doing is encouraging us 
to really switch our brains on when we're looking at the Bible. Because the Bible has a lot of wisdom to bring without having to resort to black or white ways of seeing things. We talked earlier in the series about something about this, and we used that, those two verses in Proverbs 26 that talk about how you answer a fool to show that sometimes you need one answer and sometimes you need a different answer, and the Bible is offering us both. There is complexity in how the Bible presents truth. That means that wisdom is essential. In fact, you could even go as far as to say that what the Bible most asks us to do is be wise in how we read it and in how we live as a result of having read it. And that requires a degree of self-awareness. Takes us back to that risk that as we read the Bible, what we often end up doing is looking for things that agree with what we think. It's uh, going to quote a different Greek philosopher from last time. This one is Aristotle, and he said, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. Now, the Bible says that the beginning of all wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And you might remember from last time I had a Star Trek quote where um, Data says, uh, saying, I don't know, is the beginning of, of wisdom. I don't think any of those are necessarily um, wrong. The Bible is right, clearly. Uh, but I don't think that means that something else that says this is where wisdom starts is necessarily wrong. It might be true in an additional way. I'm not going to encourage anybody to read Aristotle instead of reading the Bible. But I think the Bible is already telling us that if we want to be wise, we need to be self-aware. We need to be able to say, what, what do I bring that might be challenging? Romans uh, 12, I think it is, uh, has a bit where it says, look, the way your mind is renewed, the way you think is something that needs to be constantly under um, inspection. The Holy Spirit needs to be able to prod us and say, why do you think like this? So that we can keep bringing ourselves back to looking through the lens that God uses as he sees the world and as he sees us. We need to know ourselves, our assumptions, what our prejudices are that perhaps we're not even aware that we have. And this way we get to avoid being blinkered. It's so important that we're able to see the breadth of the world. We are not like racehorses just charging forward, hoping to get to the finish line as soon as possible. What we are doing is saying there's a, there's a world around us that needs Jesus and it needs God's wisdom. And I can bring something of that if I pay attention, if I engage with the real world. If I keep my blinkers on, yeah, I may get to the finish line before anybody else does, but how is that of any help to anyone else? We need to allow wisdom to bring truth in a way that makes sense in our time and place. Wisdom, crucially, is able to read the time and the place and then bring the truth to it. Paul does this in Acts 17 when he arrives in Athens. It may have been his normal practice to go first to the synagogue, but actually wisdom takes him to debate with philosophers in Athens. Not because, not because suddenly going to synagogue is the wrong idea, but because actually in that situation, wisdom suggests a different approach. And the Bible actually does this itself. And this is where we're going to get to some of the passages I want to read to you. 
So I'm going to start by reading a passage from Jonah and then a passage from Nahum. Actually, I'm in both cases, I'm going to be reading um, bits and pieces so that we're not spending uh, a lot, a lot of time. So in Jonah, I'm reading chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and then from chapter 3, verse 6 to chapter 4, verse 2. Don't worry about um, exactly what that's going to look like. Um, you're welcome to just listen. And then in Nahum, I'm reading it from chapter 3, but I'm reading verses 1, 5 to 7, and then 19. So let's do Jonah first. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, that, sorry, that's why I've jumped into chapter three. So a lot of stuff's happened in between. There's been a big fish and stuff like that, uh, and a storm and whatever else. And Nineveh, by the way, is a, is a city that totally represents the Assyrian Empire, uh, which is an enemy of Israel. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So in this passage, Jonah represents how the people of Israel feel about the Assyrians, how they feel about Nineveh, its heartbeat. That they are opposed to it. They are opposed to everything Assyrian. But the story shows us that God isn't opposed to Nineveh and everything Assyrian that actually God would welcome repentance from the Ninevites, that he would welcome the chance for them to say, we'll stop being evil, we'll start living how God calls us to live, and that God in his grace and compassion will choose not to destroy them, even though he said he would, because they have turned from their evil and they have chosen to follow his lead. So that's God's voice. And Jonah in that story absolutely hits the nail on the head by saying, I know what you're like, God. I know what your character is. I know you were likely to be compassionate. I did not want to come and see the Ninevites get let off. I didn't want to see that. So I didn't want to come. But in that story, Nineveh 
receives the grace and compassion of God. Now, we don't know exactly when that story was first written down, but it can't be any uh, closer than about 75 years to the Nahum passage. And the Nahum passage came first. Right. And Nahum writes this, and he writes it about Nineveh and the Assyrian people. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you and your destruction clap their hands at your fall. For whom, who has not felt your endless cruelty? It's a slightly different approach there from God to Nineveh. Why would the Bible give us a very clear picture that God hates Nineveh? and wants to see it destroyed. And then in another passage, say God wants to show mercy and compassion to Nineveh and see its people turn from evil and not destroy them. How can those two bits of perspective be in the same Bible? I want to suggest to you that the reason why it makes sense is because different things are being said for different reasons at different times. So with the Jonah story, the author seems to be saying, God, despite, despite the prejudices of the people of Israel, God has a desire to show compassion on all people. And this chimes with some of how God talked to Moses about how the people of Israel would live in the promised land, about how they were supposed to welcome foreigners, about how they were supposed to make space for and include foreigners in their religious festivals. They weren't to cut people out. There were some things that the foreigners weren't supposed to do, but they were to be included in the festivities. You've got that really clear indication but you've also, at a different time, you've got a really strong... Nahum observed this. He was, a, he was an eyewitness at the time. Um, whether he was actually at Nineveh or not, I, I, I'm less certain. But he was writing at the time of Nineveh's fall. And so he was able to encapsulate this feeling that all the nations had about how awful Nineveh was, how appallingly the people behaved. That empire was destructive. So in the middle of all of that, we have to get our heads around what the wisdom is of having those two separate accounts. And as I said, I think the reason why they happen is because at one point, the prophet is making, uh, at one stage, the prophet is making one point, and different stage, different prophet is making a different point. It's not that God is a different person. It's that the wisdom of the truth of God is being expressed in different ways. 
the Nahum passage, we might say, is expressing the truth of the justice of God and the significance of the consequences of not obeying him. At a different time, a, a, a different truth, right? the same truth is being expressed a different way. God's justice includes mercy. We cannot simply say there is one way of looking at things. We have to recognize that the Bible shows us that wisdom applies God's character in different ways at different times. I'm going to give you a second example, and that's pretty much where we're going to finish this time around. So this time we're reading from Ezra and from Ruth. So Ezra 10, 1 to 5 says this. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Just a little sidebar here. The reason why they're weeping is because there's become this awareness that the people of God have uh, married into other nations. So they have taken wives from elsewhere. And as a result, some of their uh, worship practices are to do with those other countries. Those countries are listed and they include the Moabites. Hold that in your head. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehael, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands, said Shechaniah. We will support you. So take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. And let me summarize that for you. Ezra, who is the leading priest of Judah after they've come back from, ex from exile in Babylon. Not all of them. Lots of them, but not all of them. Some of them stayed. And actually some of the key writings of the uh, Jewish culture were first published in Babylon by those who stayed back. But lots of them had come back from exile. And here they were recognizing that the law said they weren't to intermarry with people from other nations. Various nations are mentioned, Hittites and so on, including the Moabites. And as a result of that understanding that they'd done something that they shouldn't have done, <clears throat> that the law said they shouldn't do, they suggest, and Ezra takes them to make an oath, to make a, a solemn, legally binding promise, that they will, from among themselves, send away, exile, the wives and children who aren't Judahites. So whether you're Moabite or something else, if you're a wife, you're going and your children are going too, and they are leaving the nation and going somewhere else. That's what's in our head as we read this from Ruth. So I'm reading Ruth 1, 3 to 4, and then verses 13 and 14 from chapter 4. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And the skipping to chapter four. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. 
the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord. Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. And can you see the, the tension here, the, the, the difference? In Ezra, Moabite wives have to be sent away. And the men have to make a legally binding promise that they will send away their wives and children if the wives are Moabite or a series of other nationalities. And then in Ruth, not only does Boaz marry a Moabite woman, he also has a, child, has a son with her who the women's prey will become famous throughout Israel. And, and that line, that line of descendants that come from Boaz and his Moabite wife takes us down to David and in due course all the way down to Jesus. <clears throat> So you've got differing accounts again. You've got the Ezra story saying on no account can Moabite women be involved in the, um, in the story of the Judahite people, the God's people. They must be sent away. And then another occasion, a different story elsewhere in the Bible, very clearly God blesses this marriage with a Moabite woman and the son that comes from that marriage. Blesses enormously because that son eventually takes us down in lineage all the way down to Jesus. How on earth are we supposed to reconcile these two things? Is one of them wrong? Or perhaps it's the case that wisdom is being applied to truth in different ways at different times. And that is kind of where I want to leave us with an awareness that wisdom is about discernment and understanding. It's not just about rule keeping. Rule keeping, as I said before, is as far as the Pharisees ever got with this. They didn't really get hold of the idea that wisdom was crucial. They just said, let's rubber stamp life with a series of rules. And what I think wisdom tells us that we need to do is look at every situation through the lens of God's character and apply his character correctly in each situation. That is way harder work than having a rule for everything. But it's also much more like God in his patience and his mercy. Let's pray and then we'll ask some questions. Lord God, would you give us the kind of wisdom that allows us to see our lives and the lives of those around us and our nation and our community, to see all those things through the lens of your perspective. Help us not to get so hung up on what the rules are that we forget how the Bible itself looks at different situations in different ways at different times. Give us the courage to discern even when we want the option of just following a rule. Amen. So as ever, we're asking three questions. These are the three this time round. Question one, how do you respond to the differing messages of Ezra Ruth and Nahum Jonah? How do you, how do you feel when you encounter 
this kind of difference in the Bible. Question two, why do some people feel quite unnerved and unsettled and uncomfortable, troubled almost, by situations when the Bible does this, where it seems to say different things at different times? Why do people get troubled by that? It's important that we understand how we feel and how others might feel too. Question three, what are some of your assumptions? And if you're brave enough, maybe what are some of your prejudices too? It's been great to be with you. Uh, it's been a challenge, I think, looking again at how wisdom works and how the Bible treats wisdom, why it's important. Next time will be the last in this sequence. I look forward to catching up with you then. Take care and God bless.